Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today, my guest is as versatile as he is talented. It's Eddie Wong. He wrote the best-selling memoir, Fresh Off the Boat. He is a chef and owner of the restaurant Bauhaus, which had to close its doors in October. He's hosted TV shows, designed clothes, and can now add filmmaker to his long list of accomplishments. His debut feature film is Boogie, a coming-of-age story about pursuing the American dream and accepting your identity. I should note that this interview was recorded at the end of February. All right, Eddie, um, let's just jump right into the film Boogie. Uh, I just watched it last night. What's it about and how would you describe it? Well, I'm kind of curious. What do you think it's about? <laughs> I'm influenced by two things because there is the coming of age aspect of it, which it definitely serves that purpose. There's the kind of pursuing your dreams versus the reality of what those dreams turn into, what you see through Boogie, but also his parents. Uh, but there's also like this mixing of cultures that sometimes I think people might pick on or call, I don't want to say appropriation, but uh, the the way that our styles, our music, our attitudes all mix together. And I think that is my vomit statement of, of what the movie's about. Am I close? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, well, my, I, I, yeah, like, I think your closest, you know, obvious, like, it's not about basketball, right? Like, the, he plays basketball, but, you know, I, he plays I basketball. To, yeah, I comp it to say, uh, you know, I think it's the Taiwanese, Chinese, New York Rocky, right? Where Rocky's not about boxing, it's about an Italian American coming of age story. And you got Rocky at a period in time when, like, Italian-Americans were only known for a couple of things. And you didn't see too many full, complex, layered, whole Italian characters in cinema. You know, Rocky takes you on this journey through pockets of Italian-America and a guy trying to, like, make his way as a working-class American. And he also takes you through Philadelphia. And um, that's what Boogie does with the with the Asian American immigrant experience. And then it also intersects with the black experience. And you mentioned the word appropriation, but I just have to say most of the time it's like a white journalist mentions appropriation just because there's a, <laughs> I'm involved in, in black culture, but I never have had, I mean, I don't think I've had a black journalist ask me about it. And my work has involved black and Latino people since it's, since the beginning, you know, and I'm not accusing you either. I just want to, when I hear the word, I just like to say, like, you know, this is just a thing. I think sometimes there are people that don't live as diverse or as intersectional a life as mine. So it seems weird that an Asian guy is at the intersection of these things. But that is who I am. And I'm, I'm quite proud of it, you know. No, man, I, I, um, uh, this interview is not about me, and I could totally relate, and I, I didn't think you were calling me out. I was just laughing because I'm like, why did I even say that? Because it, no, it, it's no. not really. It, it, but it is uh, – but I think what I liked about the film, and, and I, I want to get into different aspects of it, is is how it is a mix of cultures. And um, if anything, it is kind of like the opposite of appropriation where you're showing the, how the influence – and in a weird way, when you start out in the film, there is those kind of defined um, – I don't want to say stereotypes, but there's just these fine notions of uh, of culture, especially New York culture. Um, but then as you go through the thing, you just realize, oh, it's not about that. It It's really just about the sharing of fear, of hopes and dreams, and just the reality that's set upon Boogie and his family and some of the other characters. 
Yeah, man, that's that's really beautiful the way you put it. And I really just, you know, this is a difficult thing because, you know, I think a lot of Americans are just like, yo, what are the rules? What am I allowed to say and what am I not allowed to say? What am I allowed to listen to and what am I allowed to wear? And how should I style my hair? And they break race down in that way. And I'm like, man, race is really, number one, it's a social construct. But, you know, if, if we talk about culture and diversity, it is a beautiful thing we should not be scared of. And if you're genuine about it and, and you really participate in community, um, I, I trust people. And this film really seeks to show how all of us are going through these things. We all have our rites of passage as we come of age. You know, Boogie has his struggle. Eleanor has her struggle. And Monk is, is, is also quite uh, complicated and, and a misunderstood figure who at the end of the film, you know, does something very sweet, you know? And uh, I try I like to- Monk. I like Monk, by the way. I like the character oh, yeah. Monk so much. <laughs> you know what's funny is I cheer for Monk the entire time I watch the film. You know, like Boogie is more of my like autobiographical connection, but I, I mean, that monk character is my favorite character in the film, you know? There's so many good characters and there's so many good lines. Uh, the coach, the uh, uh, Boogie's co- high school coach. I love that guy. Um, yeah. And then you have um, like the father and mother, which I think is probably maybe the, maybe two of the hardest roles in the film uh, yes. for actors to play. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because it is not a, a literal autobiography but obviously it's biographical what would in a way you're directing your mom and dad what was that like it's not your real mom and dad but they are characters representing that in a way yeah and in a in a funny way my mom is the fortune teller in the film so i did end up directing my mom and she's the fortune teller and uh like your actual mom plays the fortune teller i didn't know yeah, that yeah 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 my actual mom <laughs> plays the fortune teller. It's, it's pretty cool and so she's the one like giving boogie advice and that was quite surreal to watch my mom give another kid advice <laughs> it was insane and man I, I love my mom and the first time i showed it to my parents they were just silent for a few minutes afterward and my dad just nodded and said i'm i'm really proud of you i i see a lot of you in this i also see my role in your life in this and i understand what you're saying to me and um it means a lot because it means a lot and uh that was very special the three of us just sat on my couch and then it was funny because i feel like i just i came of age in front of my parents like they got to listen to my side of the story of how it felt growing up in their home it was nice and i, I got my mom to take a hit too and uh that was probably the most rewarding thing is just being able to like write this letter to my parents and show them that like there were things that made me really sad and that really hurt my feelings and made it tough to grow up. But in the end, I understood they loved me the whole time. And uh, that's what the film is about to me, I think. It's- well, let me ask you this. This is your directorial debut. And I always like to ask this question of, of directors. Tell me about the first day of filming and how did it go? This is good. This is a great question. First day of filming, I, I arrived like an hour early. I'm, I'm never early. <laughs> I arrived an hour early. I saw my best friend, Rafael Martinez, who's the executive producer of this. And he's sitting in Video Village. He's like, I'm ready, man. He's, we're doing it. There's trucks everywhere. And there's like 200 people. I'm like, oh, my God. And I found my assistant, Anna Pollock. And... I just like, let's go get a coffee. 
and we just got a coffee and I started walking around the block in the West Village because we were shooting at Jack's wife, Frida, the first day. Every block, there was like a trailer and, hey, how's it going? And, hey, Mr. Director, hey, Eddie, how's it going? Good luck, man. And it was like everyone was like cheering for me. And it felt like like Rocky running around his neighborhood, you know? <laughs> and I, you know, everyone was like so excited for me and believed in me that I forgot I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> and I walked into the safety meeting and I was and I remember we start shooting and we set up the frame. The frame looked beautiful. And uh, they were all looking at me like, action? And and then, uh, you know, and then Brett was like, well, usually sound and speed and then camera. And then I was like, just, just do it. And I, I told Nick, I was like, look, I don't know when to say what. I don't know sound, speed, like, I, like, I don't know. Just I'll tell you, I'll say action to you. And then you say all the stuff we're supposed to say. And he's like, all right, cool. And, and through the whole film, I think I may have said action like three times. And it was always just, I was like, Nick, uh, do the stuff, action. <laughs> and we roll into the scene. And I remember on the first day, first scene was Mr. Mrs. Chin and Melvin in Jack's wife, Frida, which is when Melvin kind of lays out the master plan for Boogie's future. And oh, Melvin wow. is played by... Uh, Mike Moe, who is fabulous, is an amazing, phenomenal actor. Um, he was Bruce Lee in uh, Once Upon a Time. And Mike was probably our sharpest guy. And all of a sudden, he's like he's like stuttering and he's like forgetting lines. And, and he said, like, I don't know what's going on, man. And I just whispered in his ear, I'm like, look, it sounds crazy. Do 10 push-ups. He said, what? I was like, it doesn't matter. I'll do them with you. Like, you know, just just do 10 push-ups. Trust me. It'll just get you thinking about something else. And he's a martial arts guy too. Yo, do the 10 push-ups. Because in my mind, if I'm embarrassed or I'm messing up and other people are depending on me, I'm like, yo, a little punishment. Show them. Like, look, I'm punishing myself a little bit. That it rolls off your back like I did my time, you know? And I knew that's what was going through Mike's head. Like, I'm letting people down. And he did it. And we had the scene. And he came up to me after the day. He's like, man, I really was like, man, what the f is Eddie talking about push-ups, but it worked. <laughs> that was my first day. Um, I want actually, I want to ask you as, about a scene that uh, pop, there's a lot that pop out, but this one in particular stuck out to me. It's between Boogie and his father, and they're watching a recording of a tennis match between Michael Chang and Ivan Lindell. And the yes. father says the greatest moment in Asian American history, and then and Boogie starts pitching alternatives to his dad. Or if you could just tell me about where that scene came from, and specifically that line. Oh man, that is such a seminal, that, that's my father's relationship with me. And it always felt like when I talked to my dad and I tried to outwit him, he had like the ultimate trump card. And his trump card always came from like 5,000 years of Chinese culture. And that moment is such a special moment to Asian Americans. And I wanted to isolate that moment and show Boogie trying to like grab onto something that maybe was a bigger moment. And Mr. Chin identifying where we get our strength as people and, and just kind of like a call to the ancestors because you watch that match and as an observer now, you may just be like, all right, so it's a tennis match. Cool. So the 17 year old kid won, great. You know, Naomi Osaka's winning every freaking match, right? Jeremy Lin had his run. Yao Ming had his run. But that specific moment was so important because the day before that match, 
was Tiananmen Square. And I don't think there was ever a more embarrassing moment for Chinese people around the world than Tiananmen Square. And, you know, it was even a debate in the script because people were like, look, if you write that word Tiananmen in here, if Tiananmen's in the performance, like this film may not get into China or, or you, you may not, you may not get to go to China. And I love China and my family lives in China, but I was like, that happened. And I understand that, but it was very hard to like be Chinese in America in that moment. And, and people would laugh at us for being communist and being like, Oh, you ran over your own people with a tank. And the day after that, Michael Chang won the front, you know, beat Yvonne Lendl and he gave us something to be proud about. And that's why it's such an important moment for us because we had totally lost face the day before. And this, this 17 year old kid picked all of us up and um, it's, it's quite emotional. And what, what is really crazy on the 25th anniversary of it was my green light meeting for Boogie. And when I saw that date scheduled, I, I just told my best friend, Raph, who's the executive producer, I said, this is, this is divine intervention, man. This is divine intervention. Like that scene's in the movie. It's been a huge moment in my life. Our green light meetings on that day, like it's over. You know, like this movie's happening. I want to ask you, um, I have so many questions to ask you about this film, but um, I want to ask you just be, your role as a writer, because you famously wrote um, a memoir, but this is not based off a book. This is a screenplay that you wrote and then you directed. And I, I know technically there's different ways as a writer to write a book versus a screenplay. Can you explain that that process and that difference uh, between being writing something like a memoir and uh, writing Boogie? Amazing question. I love it because writing is my favorite thing to do. But in this world and in the media, medium of film, you have so many tools at your disposal. And a screenplay is really an instruction manual. And as I've gotten better at writing screenplays, I've started to realize that like the more screen direction you can give people, the more that you can pack in there and show people the vision and show them how to make this film, the better that screenplay will be. And, um, you know, a lot of the skills I have from writing memoir goes into the screen direction, you know, painting the scene. Um, but I really like screenwriting because it unleashes the dialogue that I want to write. You got actors bringing things to life, bringing, bringing extra layers. And, and, and you know, um, the words are different in every actor's mouth. And I, I adapt lines for actors. I always tell them, don't, don't pay too much attention to the letter of the word. Own the emotion. Own the feeling. I'm, I'm not going to hang on you for each word. You know, I just want to know you're in that pocket. The words are like there to guide the feeling. You are days away from uh, having this film be seen by lots of people. If you could go back in time to earlier in the process of this film and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? You know, the best piece of advice that I got for this film was from our DP, Brett Yukowicz, who said, because I asked him, I said, hey, uh, in, in the funniest, most Asian way possible, I say, hey, any like textbooks I should read about directing? Like, should I, should I go you know, to be an H and just like learn more about camera and like, like what should I do? He goes, uh, no, don't, don't do any of that. You, you got it. I said, okay. 
And uh, he's like, look, as the director, the only thing you have to do is get our performances. Just manage the actors. If you get the performances, everyone else should do their job. And uh, for the most part, I'd say 90, 90% of people did their job. A couple of people didn't do their jobs. And, you know, we had, we had to get in there and do their jobs for them. But Brett's advice was really, really good, and it focused me. And I would tell any young director, relax. You're going to make it. It'll be fine. Just work with the actors. You get good performances. You get real performances, and they feel felt. All the other things fall, fall in line. All right, man. You are an author, a chef, a clothing designer, attorney, restaurateur, TV show host, and now filmmaker. When someone asks you what you do, what do you say? I'm, I'm most proud about being a writer and film director. Uh, this is my dream. This is all I want to do. Um, I had 10 years, very successful years in the restaurant business, and I, I closed my restaurant partly because of the pandemic, but partly because I want to focus on uh, what I feel is my life's purpose, which is telling these stories and making these films that matter a lot to me. Uh, I want to talk about MSG. It's It makes food taste delicious. And I remember growing up in the 80s in New Orleans and seeing a sign in the window of a restaurant saying, no MSG. It's kind of like they were advertising that as a positive. Now, I was a kid, um, right, through all this, but um, it turns out it was just this horrible fear-mongering campaign on MSG. Um, which was unsafe, and that's completely untrue. But it's also associated with uh, largely Chinese food and restaurants. And sadly, there's still this racist uh, stigma about it still today. And uh, can you just tell me a little bit about your work as an advocate for MSD and removing the racist terms and stigmas associated with it? Yeah, I mean, there's just a constant exotification of Asian food or culture. And uh, MSG is just another chapter in kind of like this yellow peril mentality towards a lot of the things um, we do and we offer. And obviously, like Trump's comments about COVID have not been helpful. And it was very much like yellow peril. And, uh, you know, Asians are facing a lot of violence right now because of those statements and, and because people are frustrated in this pandemic and uh, I just hope people can understand we're humans. We're not these like evil mustache twisting people in a lab. Like that's not us. You know, like we came to this country for opportunity. A lot of us have really sad stories about why we had to leave our native countries. And we're just trying to be a part of the fabric of this, this country and this experiment we've got going on. So, you know, that's how I feel. Well, I, I want to speak one more thing about the pandemic. Obviously, I feel like New York is woven into a lot of the things you do, whether it's the culture, the food, uh, the film. Um, how? What is your thoughts on like how it's been for New York getting through the pandemic, and especially like the restaurants there, the ones that have you mentioned going out of business? It's, it's tough, man, because we're really losing the restaurants that matter, like the bigger chains that got money to like wait it out. They're the ones that are going to be surviving, but. It's tough to see the mom and pops that have struggled to stay open for 20 years and then you hit this pandemic wall and it just seems helpless. And then, you know, they open for delivery and then these delivery services are just screwing all of these restaurants. You know, you use every delivery service and, and uh, you know, really they, they take most of the profit. So this is a tough time, man. It's I don't know what to say. You know, like I, I think there's only one way to feel, which is like you feel terrible. 
and then there's doesn't seem like there's a solution and the government with the it you know the covid bailouts it's, you saw all the people that got money and it's like what about the cornerstones of our society the restaurants the mom and pops the small businesses like where's the money for these guys you know where's the rent forgiveness and the, you know where's the student loan forgiveness for all the kids out there so you know I, i'm just sick of this country and it's trickle down economics you know and and even the democrats play into that it's really time to invest in the foundation of our society and watch the money pile up as opposed to trickle down that's how i feel the name of our podcast is called i'm so obsessed eddie what are you obsessed with the knicks i'm obsessed with the new york knicks um it's quite an insane obsession i'm also a a, a huge washington football team fan um what else am i obsessed with uh i mean i do like brooklyn drill quite a bit um cameron killer cam I've, I've always been obsessed with killer cam and Dipset. Um, those are the things I'm kind of famously known to be obsessed with. I like, oh, I like Taiwanese rice balls, fan twine, the Taiwanese breakfast, Taiwanese rice ball. That's probably like my favorite thing to eat. I want to ask about the Knicks because it's, I mean, as someone who was, uh, uh, had a very painful fanship for the Cubs growing up, that's a, that's, there's a lot of pain with the Knicks being a fan for them. Yeah. I'm trying to say this politely. I'm just wondering if like, is there like this hope that like, you know, when you see teams like the Red Sox or the Cubs that had such long droughts, I grew up in New Orleans, the Saints, um, uh, without winning, without giving that, that, that victory to their fans, is, is how, how do you deal with that as a Knicks fan? How, how do you deal with crappy, that hope? I love crappy teams. Like, I was a Red Sox fan until they won. And then Red Sox fans <laughs> won, won, won. I was like, once they won, it was like, oh, you guys are assholes, you know? And uh, I was a huge Red Sox fan. I love Pedro, but uh, the Knicks, man, the Knicks are just lovable. You know, we got the best colors. We got an organ. We have a theater for an arena. Uh, what else? Yeah, I just love the Knicks, man. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't feel. I mean, look, we're so, we're terrible, and I feel the pain. But like, I I've told everyone in 30 minutes we're playing the Kings. Like, these interviews got to stop. Okay, I want to wrap up uh, with you a thing called pick one. I give you a couple options and you pick one of them. It doesn't necessarily mean one is better than the other and you're encouraged to talk it out. So I'd like to play pick one, Eddie. Can we play pick one? Sure. All right, my first one is pick one. NBA or NCAA basketball? NBA, for sure. How come? They're professional. <laughs> They're better at basketball. They're better at basketball. They're, yeah. Uh, they're getting paid to win and lose. Um, yeah. Oh, that's what we could talk. That's what I feel like. It was very funny. You know, there there was always white guys, you know, back in the day in college. I like NCAA. It's a more pure form of basketball. They, they play the right way. I'm like, they, they're just worse at it. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and they have – yeah, and their games are shorter. And I'm like, this is not real basketball, you know. But, uh, yeah, I will get hate mail from friends now. All right, next one. Fried tofu, fried fish, or fried chicken? Pick one. A piece of fr- fish fried perfectly. You know, I- I'll say this: No, a really, really good piece of fried chicken is better than a piece of fried fish. 
but fried fish is generally better than fried chicken because a lot of people don't know how to fry chicken. You get an unsavory, not flavorful, dry piece of chicken, but fish is just fries really well. All right, next one. Wu-Tang Clan, NWA, or Run DMC? Pick one. Oh, I mean, between those three, for sure, Wu-Tang, I, I, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there wasn't right answers, but that's the right answer. That's the right um, answer. All right. We talked a little bit about this before, but I'm curious now. Uh, pick one, writer or filmmaker? I'd rather be a filmmaker at this point. I mean, you get to touch the right. You get to touch the story, you know, as well, a filmmaker. I get still. to play a team game. That's the thing. You know, I love writing. You know, I, I actually surprised myself that I just answered that way, but I go with the gut, and whatever my gut says is how I feel. And, uh, you know, I like filmmaking because it's a team sport. You know, writing, I just sit by myself. I like people, you know. People are kind of terrible, but I like them. Nah, man, being in a collaborative artistic environment, even if it's challenging, is, I think, one of the best places on earth. I want to thank Eddie for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. You can currently watch Boogie in theaters. Also, please take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And if you really like this episode, please rate it. Until next time, take care.